Hello and welcome to another episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, the Deputy Editor of Fintech Futures, and joining me this week are Sharon Kamathi, my editor at Fintech Futures. Hey. And Theodora Lau, founder of Unconventional Ventures. Hello, everyone. This week, we are talking about an extremely pertinent subject this year, diversity in fintech and the financial industry. Uh, but first, uh, as per usual, we're going to be picking up on some big news from the past week. We've gone out and found the most interesting numbers in the news uh, to highlight and chat about. Um, Theo, as you're our guest, uh, why don't you let us know what big number and story has caught your eye this week? Yes, certainly. So the number here is 150 million Canadian dollars. Royal Bank of Canada uh, is committing 150 million Canadian dollars, which translates to about 111 million, to racial diversity initiatives and aim to increase the proportion of non-white executive hires to 30%, up from 20%. Now, um, interesting backdrop to the story when you're trying to think about what is 111 million US dollars. Contrast, they got their revenue for 2019 was $46 billion Canadian. So there goes that. Yeah, I find that really astounding. I think I mentioned it as well in one of our previous podcasts um, that some of these initiatives are mainly around that number, sort of like a hundred million US dollars figure. Um, And it seems quite low, to be honest, especially in this day and age, because quite a lot of the fintech valuations that we're seeing elsewhere, like billions and people are really splurging in their cash um, left, right and center. But when it comes to actual initiatives to try and help the actual companies um, hire more uh, black people, Asian people and women of color and people of color, it seems like they're holding in their purse strings. Um, there was a 2020 Parker review published this year in February, and it found that 59% of the 256 firms it reviewed in the UK did not meet the Parker review target, which is to at least have one director of an ethnically diverse background on their board. And overall, it found that 9.7% of directors in the FTSE 100 were people of color compared to 5% for FTSE 250 firms. Um, Also, there was another report by the human resources consulting company Mercer for the US, which found that 64% of workers in entry-level positions are white. And in the top executive ranks, 85% of those positions are held by white, predominantly male Uh, faces. So we were talking earlier um, before the podcast started about what um, you're seeing, Theo, about women in the workforce, especially during COVID. Um, Did you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, certainly. And and I think I I agree with you. I feel like a lot of these efforts are more PR. Um, I would be very curious to see how much they spend on marketing versus how much they're actually putting in the program. Um, and, and hiring is, is, is just that, right? It's hiring. Um, there is, as you pointed out, one of the stats about, you know, the difference between the people that made it all the way to the top versus the people that they have in the funnel. And I think that explains a huge problem is, are you actually creating the culture that allow people to thrive? Do you actually have the policy that you know, can be flexible enough 
for the current situation that we're having. So, for example, in the U.S., we've been under, quote, unquote, lockdown um, or social isolation for the last four or five months. Most of the children are home. Um, and then now we're at the time where we are talking about what are we going to do in August. A lot of schools are going to be closed for in-person classes, which means children are going to be at home. So if you think about the impact of that on working parents, specifically on working mothers, they are the one who bear the blunt of having to take care of the kids, paying attention to them, helping them learn as much as they can, in addition to doing everything that we normally do in the house. So there was an interesting stat that was shared by Melinda Gates um, last year, that obviously before COVID, that found that women in general spend seven years more on domestic housework compared to men. Now that's before you have children at home, you know, for the entire school year, for example, my kids are going to be here for the next 12 months. And so you think about the repercussions of that. I think the challenge is, are workplaces flexible enough to accommodate a lot of these working mothers who won't be able to be, you know, able to respond to work during the quote unquote normal business hours and perhaps having to work reduced hours. So what will their future be like? Are women going to be increasingly forced out of work because they're forced to choose between their children and work? Are they going to receive less favorable, um, shall we say, performance review because of the perceived notion that they're not available? Yeah, I think this story, from my perspective, is just another one of those. Um, I, I don't want to be disrespectful to Royal Bank of Canada. I don't want to assume their motives in any way, shape or form. But I feel like a lot of banks have this opinion where if they come out and say racism is bad, sexism, sexism is bad, and throw a token amount of money at the issue, then that absolves them of all need to change themselves. And I think um, there needs to be a lot more action and a lot less PR with this kind of stuff. Um, and like I said, not not one to judge specifically this bank, but I feel like banking in general has a, a problem of sort of boring old banking, enjoying its um, hom homogenous nature. It's worked for us so far, apart from the global crisis. So things, you know, must be great. And if we have, if we look to hire one black executive, or we look to get a, a we find a, a token a C level executive who's a woman, then people will stop. Uh, criticizing it for criti criticizing us for it, and I think that's just the wrong kind of mindset that I see from a lot of a lot of banks in this industry. Um, what, what do you think, Sharon? For sure, I think it's also just in the financial services industry in general. I highlighted it in the um, editor's pick for this month's edition, and it shows that um, in terms of putting in sort of PR and spend, when it comes to um, some auditors, two top auditors actually. They managed to fire their um, women of color and also women who are standing up against um, white supremacy and, you know, the patriarchal system that's happening. They are the ones who are getting sacked, not the, not the people who are perpetrating it or abusing them online, who are also part of their company, but it is the victim who's getting sacked. So for me, it's put your money where your mouth is. If you actually want to promote and foster a culture that is, you know, ethnically diverse and also you know, gender diverse and people are paid parity, then do so. You don't need to put 
all this marketing and branding stuff across. Just do it. Excellent. Yeah, we'll be definitely topic uh, diving into this topic in a lot more detail in just a moment. But we're going to get through the uh, the the next two big numbers from this week. Um, mine, uh, I'll go next. And mine is that uh, it comes from the Jack Dorsey founded Square. Uh, feels rather. Um, you know, glib to move on from a story about diversity to a, a company founded by a, a middle-class white guy, but here we are. Um, <laughs> so Square has reached a, a market valuation of $55 billion uh, in the past few days, which is an absolutely huge figure. Um, it's roughly double what the company was worth just a few months ago. Um, more interestingly, it actually means that it has a higher valuation than all but four banks in the, the KBW bank index. Um, there's plenty more numbers with this story as well. Square's uh, $20 billion away from matching the valuation of Goldman Sachs. Um, it's still pretty far away from hitting the heights of a JP Morgan Chase or a Bank of America, since both of those have uh, valuations of around two hundred billion, but it's it's certainly getting close to to bank levels, uh, large bank levels. Um, the shares in the company surged after analyst reports suggested it could be on track to connect with up to twenty percent of all U.S. direct deposit accounts. Uh, and the company's cash app has also seen pretty popular usage. Uh, it's got over twenty four million users now. Square's been praised for its uh its simplicity and ease of use and its elegance in in air quotes it's arguably one of the biggest models for fintech success out there right now um its revenues are in the billions its its net income is slowly heading towards the black um it's probably one of the companies out there in the industry that that comes closest to that old moniker of uh fintech eating the banks uh, eating the bank's lunch um it, but then again, it's also an 11-year-old company, and its founder has the backing of a large company like Twitter behind him. Um, and there's plenty to talk about whether Square was just happened to be a right time, right place proposition and company, or whether it's a, a true market leader in the space. I mean, the figures suggest that much. But um, what do you guys think, Sharon? Um, I think in terms of its cash app, there's loads of you know, promising stats for the paytech sector. And maybe that's why they're valuing it so highly. Um, there was a stat by the Merchant Savvy Group, and it says that there's 1 billion of people who are predicted to use a mobile payment app worldwide for this year. And they forecast that by 2023, it's going to grow to 1.31 billion worldwide um, over a six-month period. Uh, they also note that majority of people, though, are using these sort of cash and payment apps um, in Asia, in the Asia Pacific region, mainly in China through Alipay. Um, there's also another forecast uh, by the Mordor Intelligence Group, and they say that the mobile payments industry will grow by 26.93% between 2020 to 2025. Um, so maybe that's why they're valuing it so highly um, in terms of foreseeing where it's going to go, seeing an industry trend. And yes, I guess, as you mentioned, it is this sort of fintech eating banks lunch, if you will. Um, so yeah, I, I guess it seems like a, a promising venture that keeps going up and up. What do you think, Theo? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting when you mention, um, you know, a large part of this is contributed by the ecosystem in China. We actually recently did a story on that too. I would caution, though, when we talk about fintech 
um, eating the bank's lunch. Because if we look at what the strategy of Ant Group does, for example, in addition to the infamous Alipay, where, you know, seemingly a billion, 1.2 billion users, I think that was the last number, um, worldwide that's using it. Um, the other active um, strategy, if you will, is them working with incumbents in China to try to help them digitize their operations and, and get them to, to 2020, whatever 2020 means right now. Um, so I think there is a lot of room for a lot of these technology companies to actually work with banks to transform what they're doing rather than taking over the market share. Because I think in the end of the day, if both parties can work together, consumers will benefit. Excellent. Well, uh, in that case, we'll shift over to our uh, third story uh, this week, um, which is Sharon's, which I believe is to do with uh, the buy now, pay later fintech sizzle. Is it sizzle? Yes. Yeah, I think it's sizzle. You know, for some reason I thought it was sizzle, but yeah. So sizzle, um, which is a US founded buy now, pay later fintech is raising 86.3 million Australian dollars, which is 60 million US dollars. Um, so it issued 4.1 million chest depository interests. Um, and these CDIs allow non-Australian companies like Sezzle to list on the Aussie exchange. Um, now, Australia already has a handful of buy now, pay later competitors. Um, so this month, Afterpay launched a 1 billion capital raising Australian dollars again. Um, and founder sell down Brisbane founded Foo. I think that's how it's pronounced Foo, um, opened its Series A funding round and Layby launched its second pre-IPO raising. So it looks like there's a serious growth of buy now, pay later firms emerging and staying strong, especially during this time. Now, I found some interesting stats. And yes, I am going to be a Debbie Downer once again with all of these stats. So nearly a quarter of Gen Zers, according to Compare the Market Survey, say that they are likely to use buy now, pay later credit to fund purchases as a result of COVID-19, as some 19 to 24-year-olds are taking on these schemes to fund lockdown spending without realizing the full implications, especially at a time when households are cautious of taking on more debt than necessary. Um, in the last 12 months, as many as 10 million people have used buy now, pay later schemes, according to the Office for National Statistics, and that's just in the UK, um, and so many of these schemes are aimed at 25 to 34 year olds and also um, the generation that's, you know, lower. Um, and it looks like a lot of these people don't fully read the actual terms and conditions. So unfortunately, there have been um, some people who have had their credit scores completely injured because of this. So nearly 40 percent of youngsters who had used these schemes said it had damaged their credit score, according to research by Compare the Market. Um, and it looks like these types of emerging buy now, pay later and sort of bridge, bridging the gap credit firms um, are rising during this time of a lot of, you know, job insecurity um, because of COVID. And also a lot of furloughing or redundancies. We've seen so many, um, sadly, people lose their jobs in the financial services industry. Um, but yeah, what do you guys think? You know, I, I personally have the opinion that it's mainly just the same old um, credit bubble happening just this time with fun pastel colors um, all over like Klarna um, as opposed to your regular old boring MBS. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I mean, having been 
someone who irresponsibly spent a lot of money in his early 20s um Oh, the warning signs are all there for me. I know that the the me who was in his second year of university and spent nearly all of his student loan on frivolous stuff would have loved something like this. And that's not to say all people in their early 20s are financially irresponsible, but some of them are. And some of them are also, you know, financially, they'll scroll to the bottom of a term, terms and conditions and click the OK button. And uh, I think a lot of these companies have thrived on this, um, this ability. I mean, PayPal has a has a has a similar service that although it's not buy now pay later it's more like buy now and then pay up pay after delivery um which I've used multiple times simply because it's nice to think that you're not paying the money straight away uh however it, it they have brought the attention of some regulators i mean there've been calls for the FCA in the UK to to have a closer look at them and the FCA says it has no plans to look at it in depth but it continues to, in, in air quotes, monitor the market. Um, in Australia itself, the Securities and Investments Commission um, has said that it has poses that the, the, the buy now pay later sector poses massive risks to the under thirty fives, um, and that consumers were becoming financially overcommitted, and it's been calling for for greater um, extension of its remit so it can cover these companies a lot better. Uh, it just sort of seems like a bit, like you said, a bit of a bubble, a bit of a ticking time bomb. But um, what are your thoughts on this, Theo? I agree. I think it is a ticking time bomb. Um, fundamentally, you know, what, what we always believe in is um, do not spend more than what you have, right? And if we have to actually go the route where you buy now, pay later, because you can't commit to the entire payment, for example, you can't, you know, pay for the entire pair of jeans, at one time or whatever it is that, that you would like, then perhaps you shouldn't be spending that much to begin with. I think fundamentally what I have a problem with is one, um, Shannon, like, like you say, and Alex is being disguised at something pretty with pastel color. And it's like, Oh, you know, this is so easy. You get what you want on the merchant on the merchandise right away. And you worry about the payment later. That's one big problem I have. Second is fundamentally, why are we making it so easy for for younger generation or, or anyone for that matter to to get credit when we don't even teach them what credits and all of this is about when they're in school, right? And I still remember the experience I had when I went to college. The first thing I saw was actually tables of people signing up for signing you up for credit card, right? You know, a, a college branded credit card. You feel like you're part of the university. But before that, no one, aside from my father, who I, I am absolutely indebted for, nobody in school actually taught us about responsible uh, handling of money, you know, the, how you're supposed to deal with money, your relationship with it. Uh, no one. The, literally, the first experience that you get when you're adulthood is, hey, here's a credit card. And by the way, it's 0% and trust. Go sign up for it. Until when you realize that you signed up too much. Now we enter part two of the podcast, where we open up the discussion on a specific industry topic. 
As I mentioned at the start, we're talking about diversity in the financial services industry. It's a topic that is deservedly getting more and more headlines, but there's still a long way to go. Sharon is going to be diving deep into the topic with Theo in just a second. Uh, but first things first, I wanted to give Theo a, a chance to talk about Unconventional Ventures and herself, introduce the firm, uh, and give us an overview of how things have been in 2020 and where they may go in later this year and 2021. So uh, Theo, take it away. Great. Thank you for having me. So Unconventional Ventures um, is myself and my partner in crime, Bretley Lima. We strongly believe, and the reason why we started the firm, is that everyone should have a chance to try and succeed, regardless of where you're from, your gender, your age, your social um, circles, uh, your education, and and all of that. Um, Throughout both of our corporate careers, we have worked with a lot of startups and founders who face tremendous difficulties trying to raise money, trying to get into, quote unquote, a circle to get their voices heard simply because of the color of their skin, um, because of their gender, because of what they believe in, or a lot of times because of their age. Um, Silicon Valley has a specific perception of who and what qualities you need to make a good founder. And so when we set out the company, that is the first and foremost thing that we believe in. And our work revolves around that. Um, so we focus on broadening opportunities for diversity within our ecosystem. We do a lot of work advising startups. We work with um, different corporates, clients, and financial institutions. We do a lot of the mon- mon- uh, mentoring and also connecting founders to funders. Um, another thing uh, which we do, and Sharon, that's how... I met you was um, we work with a lot of event organizers um, to speak and also to basically get the the message out and get us to change our thinking on why it is important to have different voices and different perspective presented on stage. Yeah, I do remember that's uh, how we met on the Finnovate Europe. It seems like a long time ago, but it was just February. <laughs> it's insane um, in Berlin. And we were talking about um, AI and actually AI and, and bias. Um, so recently on this podcast, we highlighted the rolling back of facial recognition software by IBM, Google and Amazon because of the technology's tendencies to discriminate. Um, and with a focus on AI, what do you think is creating excitement in the industry and how does it match with what you're seeing in terms of actual implementation and execution before we dive into the bias element? Yeah, I think there is a lot of excitement. There has been for quite a while now. Um, unfortunately, if we look around us, I think the implementation of that um, is lacking a little bit um, compared to how much excitement and how much executives tend to say, oh, yeah, we're all doing AI, but exactly what are we doing? Um, I think if we look back in the last few months, um, how we often like to talk about how uh, consumers' behaviors have changed, how we work has changed. One of the big area that we have seen um, a little bit more development is around the development of um, AI and chatbots because of the increased volume of customer inquiries, calling into the banks and trying to get answers. Um, we're seeing more organizations establishing um different chatbot or voice bot even in in some cases to deal with that increased volume and also you know as a way to handle changes in the call center where a lot of the agents are working from home so those are interesting development but as far as the potential of using ai there is so much more i think that the one that get me really excited is about 
how do we leverage AI to better understand our finances and also help us plan better? Uh, one of the areas we're mo- most um, passionate about, if you will, is about intergeneration dynamics. Um, a lot of us are sandwiched generation. We're in the 40s and 50s and we have parents we need to take care of, or in some cases, grandparents, um, as well as our children. And so if you think about the fact that we're living 30 years longer, but the way that we perceive money, the way we think about retirement and saving, that hasn't changed. And I see AI having an immense opportunity to actually do something useful, to gather all of the data points, to understand who I am as a customer, what are my aspirations, what do I want to do, what are my obligations, and help me plan better. Right. Because a lot of times we hear people say, oh, you know, I can't do this because this is too hard. It takes too much time. Or who actually wants to sit down and fill out a 10 page static spreadsheet and say, oh, you know, this is what I plan to be. And then just leave that plan as is. No one's life is static and neither should the way that we plan for our future. Yes, of course. And we can't even talk about this transformation without highlighting the challenges um, as mentioned earlier, that we will be diving into AI and bias. Now, what can banks and financial institutions do before implementation to stop the bias on its tracks? Can they even stop it? Is it too late? That is a million dollar question. I think inherently as humans, we're biased, right? And so we think about AI, we think about the data sets and the creators of the algorithms, if you will, inherently we will introduce bias in there. Um, what is interesting is, for example, earlier we were talking about Ant, um, Ant Group, and one of the implementations that they have is using AI to determine credit. And they got it down to a model where they can literally get someone approved for a loan on the mobile phone by using AI to determine the risk and the creditworthiness and get it approved right away. Um, so that in itself, if it's done right is really good for enabling micro-entrepreneurs and small businesses to get access to credit and to expand. However, with that being said, and I'll quote one of my friends, Lizzie Chapman um, from Zest Money in India, she always tells me, lending is easy. Responsible lending is hard. It's not just about getting credit in the hands of people. It's also making sure that they are able to repay it without indebting them too much. Um, and I think that from an ethics perspective, we need to think about that. Now, back to bias and AI, I think it's going to be incredibly hard. As long as you use the data set that we that is available, historically speaking, if you're thinking about, for example, US, there is no lack of systemic bias against certain race and against certain demographics of people. And so when you include all of that, I think it's really, really hard to make an algorithm fair. Um, I remember hearing something, um, Carrie, I believe, um, from Google, and she had mentioned what we need to be worried about is in the algorithms, is the unskilled wishers, the people that create the algorithm. Um, And to combat that, I think first and foremost, is we need to get more diverse people in to work on the algorithms, to work in AI. As long as the people that are creating it is not diverse, I think it's going to be incredibly hard to take the bias out. And we can use voice technology, for example, as an example. I have all three devices at home um, between Google and Amazon and Apple. 
every single one of them have trouble understanding me. Now, I do have a little bit of an accent. I, I do tell people that. But it, the reason why it has so much trouble understanding me is, A, because I'm a woman. So the way I speak is different tonation-wise and volume-wise compared to a guy. And then second thing is I do have a few different accents when I speak and when I speak. And the data set that is used to train all of these devices is not diverse enough. And there's no possible way that it could understand me and what I'm saying. And so as we start to introduce more of these automation tools into our lives, we need to think about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of including more diverse voices during the actual curriculum in your universities or wherever these developers are emanating from would be super helpful. Um, but do you think there are other initiatives that can help? Do you think governmental or supranational support can help? Or perhaps in these schools and universities and institutions, if they are taught something else um, in terms of how the actual tools they're learning will affect people in society. Do you think that might help? Absolutely. I think education does play a big part in it. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that are in our system that we just take it for granted because that's how it is. But we need fresh pair of eyes looking at things, right? I have, I have two children. They're seven and 10. And they would ask me these questions that you know, for me, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I never question it because I grew up seeing how things are and you just take it as it is. We need more role models for these children to look up to so that they know that they can be that. We need more um, education on humanities and ethics because we are lacking it. We are focused so much as a society on ones and zeros. But if we look at how our world is, we look at the people that develop it, unless they understand the context of how things are right now, unless they understand the history, unless they understand how systemically we are biased as a society against certain demographics, we will keep perpetuating the same bias on and on from ourselves through the algorithm. So definitely education and how we educate um, plays a big part and also lifelong learning. Um, you know, it, in relation to how I was talking about earlier, our relationship with money, the same with education, right? Why are we as a society get so used to, you know, getting your bachelor degree or master degree and work and work and then, you know, whatever it is that we do, retire. Why can't it be continuous? Why can we rethink how we live our lives to multi-stage life? You know, we need to provide more avenues for people to get additional training, reskilling, upskilling and to learn how the world has changed around us and so we can adapt with it. I could not agree more. I really enjoy that sentiment of lifelong learning. I think that's definitely something that a lot of people can benefit from. And I'm not sure that this is wide public information, but movements in the UK, like the Black Lives Matter UK movement, it couldn't even open a bank account for all the donations that they were receiving recently. Um, they only just managed to get one after two months. Um, so we can't just blame it on um, AI um, and developers. What can financial institutions do to seriously try and tackle and eradicate racism from their midst and raise the voices of groups seeking justice and equality? I think they need to be more conscientious on what they're doing, right? The, the current business model 
um, needs to change first and for all. Um, there was a, an article in New York Times quite recently that talked about the fees that banks have gathered from late fees and overdraft fees and all of that. And if you dig deeper, a lot of these fees are imposed on people that are low income. And so as, as a financial services institution, a lot of times when we talk about financial inclusion, financial inclusion isn't just for people in developing economies, like in Southeast Asia and in India. It is also for people that are in developed economies, people that are being shut out from my financial services system or people that are not well served because of how the model is, right? We, we cannot keep dinging people because they're poor. That is the absolute wrong way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And we can't even finish talking about this movement without highlighting the emotional toll that it's taking. Um, So I'm going to take this moment in time to just ask, how do you feel working as a woman in the fintech industry whilst all of this is happening around us, all the social movements across the globe, including the US? Um, If I were to be frank, I am exhausted. I think I'm physically exhausted and mentally exhausted. Um, I feel like a lot of times we're at the stage where, you know, we are where we are. We're supposedly in one of the greatest countries in the world in the United States, um, one of the richest countries in the world. But yet, if you even pay as slightest bit of attention in, in newspapers, you'll see the world as we know it is not working. The system as we know it is not working. And the status quo as we have had it, quote unquote, should not be upheld it needs to change because it's not working for most of the people. It's not working for uh, women of color. It's not working for women, period. It's not working for working mothers. Um, it's not working for older adults. I mean, how can we live in a society where people think older adults' lives are expendable? How can we live in a society where people think children and teachers' lives are expendable? It, it's just, this is so wrong. There's so much wrong with, with, how we're dealing with crisis. And if this is not a moment of reckoning, I don't know what is. So we've reached the last segment of the show, and that means it's time for the FinTech Jail. This is where our guest submits a term, a trend, a technology, or something else in the, the fintech industry that gets on my nerves and tells us why it should be locked away for good and why speakers at conferences across the land should be banned from ever speaking its name. Sharon and I will then debate whether it deserves a place in the jail alongside all the other words. Uh, Sophia, what term have you brought with you that needs sending down this week? Disruption. And the reason why I think it needs to go away is because I think as an industry and as a society, we place so much value in disrupting the status quo and taking things away is never a zero sum game, right? Why can't we talk more about collaboration, working together, crossing the bridge so that we can actually create more value for our society and for our customers? Wow, that's a big that's a big word to be putting in there. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that I didn't want to applaud when you said it, but um, <laughs> I mean, I 
I, yeah, I, 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 with disruption comes this, one of my biggest pet peeves, if I had the chance to put something in here would be that sort of mentality of, um, we talked about it before the podcast started, people saying, you know, spend time over uh, coronavirus locked away at home. You have to learn a new language or learn a new skill or do this, upgrade yourself. And it's like this continuous drive. And I feel that that's the same. I think we have a lot of people in this industry who have been driven to burnout by endlessly trying to disrupt and try to, you know, spending all their time at work and showing off about all the new things they're doing. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's a big term, but I mean, I'm, I'm really with you on that one. What about, what do you think, Sharon? I am on board. I have been so bored of this word for such a long time. Yes, 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 yes. Give it life, life imprisonment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. Cause I just, I could not agree more. And to be honest, when people do use the word like disrupt or like disruption, they're not actually disrupting anything. Like when you think of um, like Klarna, for example, if they're coming in the industry and saying, we're going to disrupt what credit, what you're just like going to disrupt credit. Cause it's the same model. It's the same model, just different color this time. You know, this time it's pink, you know, instead of corporate blue with, you know, all, all your, your black credit cards that you would see your platinum cards. Yeah. It's the same thing. So yes, Theo could not agree more. I love it. Thank you. And, and I would add to it too, right? I think one of my pet peeves is that when we look at a lot of the fintechs and they say, oh, you know, we're going to do something different. And then they came out with yet another debit card. They came out with yet another app. Yes, it's prettier. It's simple. It's beautiful UI. And how does that help me as a consumer again? Yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm fully on board. Let's put it away. Um, and if we want to get someone, if we want to get someone to try and defend it, they're they're welcome to try and defend it. Uh, we're going to be talking. We're going to be telling you our Twitter handles in a minute. So if you want to get sending us <laughs> your opinions on Twitter, then then go right ahead. But yeah, that's. Uh, I'm banging the game on that one. That one's going straight into the fintech jail. Yes, lock it away. Well, that's all we have time for uh, for this jam-packed episode. Uh, thanks to Sharon and Theo for joining me. Um, before we sign off, though, uh, let's plug socials. As I said, let's let's put targets on our backs. Um, Theo, perhaps you'd like to go first? Sure. Um, my Twitter handle is uh, uh, PSB underscore DC. Just look up Theodore and you will probably find me. And I will welcome any challenges. God knows I can use more. Excellent. Uh, Sharon, where can we find you? You can find me at Fintech Kits. That's the way you normally spell Fintech. And then K-I-T-S, uh, like the way you spell kits. Um, and you can also just find me on LinkedIn and just send me a random friend request with barely any mutual connections, as always, on LinkedIn <laughs> with just my normal name. Excellent. You can find me on Twitter at, at ADHamilton91 and on LinkedIn uh, just by searching my name. And my little plug, I, I redid my own personal website the past week. So if you want to go and uh, oh, cool. justify my justify my web hosting costs, then please visit alexanderhamiltonwrites.com. Um, as for Fintech Features, you can find us online at www.fintechfeatures.com, on Twitter at, at Fintech Features, and on LinkedIn just by searching for Fintech Features and looking for our 
gorgeous purple logo. Uh, if you like the podcast and our other episodes, then please feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service. Uh, we'd also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find us by writing a review or recommending us to a friend or posting about us on Twitter. Um, thanks very much for any and all of your support. Uh, we'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech or your favorite podcasting service.